Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. All right, we're back with episode three. And apparently there's still some people out there listening. So thanks again for tuning in and taking some of your day to listen to what we've got to say. I'm learning a lot as I do this, and I want to apologize if we've had any glitches or technical problems. Uh, I'm learning a lot about audio production, but it's it's a little bit of a challenging task. I'm doing it all myself here in the guest bedroom of my home. So we'll we'll kind of figure this out together. I'm really excited for today's episode. We have Chris Benson as our guest. He's our first non-orthodontist on the show. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about trends in the orthodontic profession and observations he's made as he's visited and worked with thousands of orthodontic practices. Our tip of the week today is on doing a quarterly personal financial review. It's a little bit dense, and I've tried to explain what I do as best as I can. But if you have questions, I'd be happy to answer any of them. Log on to our Facebook group at Elevate Orthodontics Podcast and shoot me a question and we'll see what we can do. All right, let's do this. So for today's tip of the week, I want to introduce to you the concept of the quarterly review. This is really one of the best tools I've found for keeping on track with my financial goals. I've probably been doing this for a decade or so, and so at this point, it's pretty fine-tuned for my needs. For many years, I also did a monthly budget review, which I recommend if you feel somewhat out of control with your personal finances and your spending. There are five parts to the monthly review. First, you're going to review your income and your spending over the last three months. You're going to need some sort of record-keeping system to monitor this on an ongoing basis. You can use Mint.com, you need a budget, Quicken, Excel spreadsheet, whatever. The goal here is to make sure that you have an accurate sense of what's coming in and what's going out. Are there any unauthorized charges or unexpected expenses? Are there things you regret having purchased? Do you need to make any changes to how you're spending your money? A great question from the book Your Money or Your Life is, did I receive fulfillment, satisfaction, and value in proportion to what was spent? If the answer is yes, awesome. If the answer is no, don't beat yourself up, but do adjust going forward. Second part, calculate the amount of passive income that you can expect from your investments outside of orthodontics. For some, that'll be real estate rents, dividends from privately held companies, distributions from trusts or pensions, etc. For most, however, that will mean income from your portfolio of publicly traded stocks and bonds. You could also include the after-debt and tax value of your practice, although that's a little bit more iffy. I take all this and add it together and divide that by 25, which is about a 4% annual withdrawal rate, and I'm aware that this 4% is pretty highly disputed. And then I divide that by 12 to get a monthly amount I could reasonably expect to live on using my investments outside of my practice. If you're just getting started, this number will be very small, but it will grow over time. Okay, third step. I add the income, spending, and passive income numbers to a chart, which tracks my progress every quarter towards financial independence. Obviously, I want to see that my expenses over time are less than my income. That gap we've talked about before is the fuel for building wealth. 
I also want to see my expected passive income line creep up off the bottom over time. When the amount I can expect from passive income exceeds my monthly expenses, I will be financially independent. Number four, I review my annual financial goals, and we can talk about that in another post where we talk about goal setting for the year. And fifth, each quarter, uh, my wife and I review certain aspects of our financial life on a rotating basis to make sure we're on top of everything. This includes items like insurance, college savings, retirement planning, etc., and I will cover these in more detail in future posts. By taking this time to review our finances every quarter, I make sure that I'm making steady progress towards my goals and that I'm not overlooking any critical or weak spots. And I'm happy to answer any questions you have about this process on our Facebook Hangout or via email. As always, these blog posts are available on our website, elevateorthopodcast.com. Chris Benson has been working with orthodontists regarding the business aspects of their practices for over 25 years. He's currently the president of Benson, Clark & Koppel and the publisher of the Benson Clark Resource, a quarterly newsletter focused on the business aspects of running a successful orthodontic practice. He's a frequent guest lecturer at orthodontic residency programs, study clubs, and orthodontic user meetings. He's a contributor to the national orthodontic periodicals and journals, and over the course of Chris's career, he has personally visited over 1,000 orthodontic practices in the United States, Canada, and Australia. On a personal note, I used Benson, Clark, and Koppel to help with my practice purchase almost six years ago, and I was really impressed with their services. Chris, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing tonight? Uh, great, Lance. Thanks. I know you're coming to us from the AAO meeting in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and, and despite having a little bit of a cold, you're, you're willing to come on and, and join us, so, so thanks a lot for that. Uh, it's a privilege, and I, I think this is a great idea. I hope I hope it has some reach, and um, uh, happy to share uh, with with the group. Thank you, thank you. So, for those who might not know you, um, tell us a little bit about your firm and what you've been up to recently. What what Benson Clark and Koppel is all about? Great, thank you. Um, well, I, as you mentioned, I've been working with Orthodontists really since 1989. Um, but in 2004, uh, started a company in Greensboro, North Carolina called Benson Clark and Koppel. And we basically uh, started as a valuation and transition kind of a, a historical, you know, traditional company like that, just doing valuations for any change of ownership. We represented either buyers or sellers, um, um, in that transaction. And um, since then, we've uh, added the Benson Clark resource that you mentioned, which is a way for us to communicate on some of the business aspects of what we see as common threads and successful practices. And we publish that quarterly by subscription. And we've also, the last five or six years ago, added uh, orthodontic recruiting so that if you have trouble uh, finding a job, you can register with us. I have two full-time recruiters. If you're an orthodontist that wants an associate, a partner, or a buyer, we can go find one and, and match those up for you. And um, that's actually the fastest-growing piece of our business now. So valuations, transitions, publishing the newsletter, and recruiting orthodontists uh, to, to place them in positions is what we do. Got it. Yeah, I always like talking with guys like you because – you know, orthodontists, we tend to be kind of focused in on our practices, what's going on in our day to day. And, you know, if you're not careful, you can kind of get caught up in your own little world. 
So I think someone who's seen a lot of different practices and can kind of see these commonalities, I think that brings uh, a little bit of a, a unique perspective and, and this is why I really wanted to, to have you on the show. I want to divide our conversation today into two parts. I want to start a little bit talking about what you see as perhaps being some of the broader trends in our industry. And then second, maybe a little bit of a conversation about what you see inside of these 1000 orthodontic practices that's working, maybe what's not working. Does that sound like a plan? Absolutely. First off, we've got these big trends in orthodontics, and I saw you speak at the MKS meeting, and you touched on some of these things, clear aligner therapy, corporate dentistry. My sense is that perhaps the world of orthodontics is, is changing a little bit more than many doctors realize, and, and I'd love to hear what, what your thoughts are and kind of what the big trends are that people kind of should be aware of from a macro perspective. Yeah, there, there's a lot of wind blowing out there in dentistry right now, and, and some people want to compare it um, to what happened in medicine really over the last 30 or 40 years. I don't, I don't know if it'll go that deep because we're not as involved um, in orthodontics, at least, um, and dentistry really with, with you know, the insurance side of, of things. But, um, you know, there's, there's five or six big changes that are happening, happening, um, in dentistry much faster than I thought they would, but, but you touched on one of them and that's consolidation. Um, and what that word means really is that there's a lot of money, uh, out there right now, um, in the general dental space and in the specialty space where we're trying to aggregate footprints in, in specific drawing areas by combining practices, purchasing practices, putting them under one management hood and trying to gain efficiencies um, with scale. And so that's happening um, at a very accelerated rate, and it's driving some changes primarily in the new and younger doctor base. Um, student loan debt uh, for residents when they get out of their programs now, and I don't know what yours was, Lance, but it's it averaging about yeah. $400,000 now. And so there's a lot of debt fatigue with residents that are getting out, and with the consolidation, these consolidators need workers. They need orthodontic labor. And they're hiring and paying more uh, for orthodontists rather than their programs to work as associates um, than we've ever seen before. You can make 30, 40% more money with um, a, a DSO group than you can with a private pay orthodontic solo practitioner or small group practice. And a lot of people are choosing that. We also have this kind of generational shift. Uh, there's been a lot written about millennials over the last several years, but in our recent uh, resident survey that we do annually, um, we see that about 54% of the residents uh, believe that when they leave their program, they'll work as an employee um, doctor, as an associate. And some believe that they'll do that for a career. That's a relatively mm. new phenomenon. So that's, yeah. that's a big trend. And, and the consolidation is driving a lot of that. When you see this consolidation, do you feel like, you know, obviously there's efficiencies to be gained. Um, is is that something that's that's actually playing out in the marketplace, or is that kind of yet to be determined? I, I think it's yet to be determined. Uh, right now, it's is there's just so much money at, at, that the consolidators are are almost competing amongst themselves for practices that are willing to sell to them. So I call it a bit of a land grab right now, where uh, the consolidators are just spending money to buy revenue, and they're kind of bolting on practices around an idea. But these ideas of how to really manage a practice and putting systems in place aren't very formalized today. Uh, there, are, there aren't a lot of budgets yet. There's not a lot of top 
down management through the organizations yet. They're kind of buying, buying practices and letting them operate as they always have. But I think what we'll see over the next five to ten years is a lot of input from the management uh, people who are some doctors and some not but trying to drive these efficiencies. So to answer your question, we're, we're not seeing um, a lot of process management yet, but I think that is to come. And right now, um, you know, it, it, it's just a bit of a, if you, if you want to sell your practice uh, to a DSO, those opportunities are there. Um, they don't have to go through banks, so they, they have cash. They can pay money. They want to keep the buyers on for a couple of years. That's a good fit for some people. Um, and so we're just seeing a lot of transactions happening and the DSO space is anywhere from five or six uh, practices in a drawing area up to the very elite DSOs uh, that you're familiar with hearing about, like Heartland and uh, Pacific Dental System, you know, and, and so forth. And they have in the in the hundreds and thousands. So, yeah, so very very large ones, very very small ones. But we believe that this is going to continue. I think the most recent data I saw from the ADA was. About seven and a half percent of the orthodontists in the country are believed to be working for a DSO right now. Wow, that's a lot. I didn't realize that for orthodontics it was that high. It's a scary number, isn't it? Um, and we think it's going to grow. I think that you know the question on everyone's mind is you know how deep does it go, um, and what percentage of the market will it overtake? And there's a lot of opinions about that, and and they're all just that they're opinions. But I don't think it's going to go away. I think it will be substantial. It will be material and it will get larger each year uh, over the next decade. And then we'll kind of have to see what happens. I predict in 10 years we'll have a consolidation of the consolidators where the big guys will start eating the little guys on the DSO market. But we'll see how deep it goes. So besides consolidation, what other kind of trends are you seeing out there in the marketplace? You know, I think right now, you know, the economy has made it tough, um, you know, to grow your practice since 2008. The economy has grown really at, at you know, under 2% most years and right at 2%. I think uh, 2016 might be a 2% year after the numbers are all tallied up but or, or just under. So it's hard to grow your practice at 4, 5, 6, 7% where you can double it every 7 or 8 years. And so uh, what we're seeing as a result is the solo practitioners and the small group practices are adding more locations. And while they're not DSOs, they're also contributing to more opportunities for associates to help run these larger enterprises. So one of them is an acceleration of partnerships. Um, it used to be that you didn't, didn't really economically want to have a partner if you were in the business to maximize profit because you could do just fine by yourself. But now with the economy kind of slow, a lot of practitioners didn't sell their practice, so there's a little bit of an oversupply of, of orthodontists in the, in the market space. Uh, we're seeing an acceleration or a trend of more partnerships on the, on the private pay side in addition to the consolidation that's on the more corporate side. So that's happening. On the clinical side, I'm not a clinician. I'm not an expert, but I think that, you know, you mentioned MKS. I did talk about a line. I think, you know, they did $1.1 billion in revenue um, in 2016. $600 million of that was in the United States. About $400 million of that was with orthodontists in the United States. That dwarfs any of the bracket company sales. Um, and they have big plans to, you know, double their company, I think, by 2019. A lot of that's internationally, but that company's going to grow. That, that plastic is going to be part of the practice modalities. There's been a lot of... Um, acceptance and resistance of that concept by by individual doctors and I think they've done such a good job of 
um, really marketing to the consumer that if the consumer comes to your practice and asks if you do Invisalign and you don't, I think more and more what we'll see is they will go find someplace that will. Yeah. So I think that's a big change on the clinical side. Uh, but the, those those are the biggest things. You've got student loan, and, um, you've got consolidation, you've got this, you know, acceleration of partnerships. You've got kind of treatment modality changes, making plastic, you know, able to treat more cases and then be more accepted by the public. And then the last thing is this direct to consumer kind of uh, series of products or or basket of products, if you will. Uh, with SDC kind of leading the way where the consumer can actually take you know, their own impressions and have a doctor-directed treatment plan uh, delivered but never have to go to an office. I think that's a frightening thing. We'll have to see how it plays out. But I think the last data that I saw said that SDC is is moving at around a $50 million a year clip. The people behind that on the investment side have been very successful in other uh, marketplaces, and I don't think that's going to go away either, whether that's expanding the market and attracting patients that your practice would not normally see, or if it's taking away. I think uh, we, we don't know the answer to that yet, but I think that's the other big concern in the orthodontic specialty right now is, is direct-to-consumer orthodontics. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting time to be practicing because on the one hand, as an orthodontist, you know, we like to take advantage of these technologies, uh, intraoral right. scanners, uh, aligner therapies. Um, but what we're also kind of realizing is that, that, you know, the control of these things isn't necessarily within our practices. And perhaps, you know, some of that, some of that is good. And in, in other words, do, you know, sharing the efficiencies of this technology and better outcomes with our patients or, you know, that that's, I think, an overall good thing, but it's a little bit terrifying to, to understand how this is going to work and how this is going to affect orthodontists in private practice. You know, it's a great point. And, um, you know, we, our, our expertise is really in understanding, you know, how a practice operates from a profitability standpoint. And we see all this technology that you can get from comb beam to scanners to digital printers to everything, and it's not inexpensive. You know, one advantage that a multi-location, multi-doctor setup has, whether it's, you know, on the private side or on the corporate side, is that they can put doctors in multiple locations on the same day and produce on the same day. But if you're by yourself and you have this capital invested, you can only be in one place at one time. And so part of the efficiencies these bigger footprints are trying to drive is is to, to get more value out of the capital that's deployed in, in, in their enterprise. Yeah. I'd say in, I'd say in general, in all of dentistry, we're terrible at using capital, right? You know, we have these elaborate offices that are only open how many hours. We have this expensive equipment that that sits there basically unused most of the time. That is an area where efficiencies can can definitely be had. I think across the board. I think so, and there's some hedges against that. You know, I think you have to kind of choose your lane more more directly than you used to have to. You have to really understand: Do I want to compete in the value? kind of insurance-driven practice, or do I want to be in that mid-market, or do I want to be in that more boutique market? And there's a different deployment of technology in each of those ranges to make it affordable. And then there's this whole concept that uh, is also probably a, uh, a trend we should have mentioned, but, you know, should I uh, try to leverage, you know, my my location with uh, uh, a relationship with a pediatric dentist, because increasingly they're doing a lot of orthodontics inside their practices, and 
you know, there's this notion of is if I partner with a pediatric dentist, am I going to limit my referrals from other places? But there's so much direct-to-consumer marketing going on that we think it's a good hedge for many practices, at least on the satellite level or a real estate level. So um, the yeah. pediatric dental component is is also a, a big moving piece that we're trying to understand, um, you know, the advantages of that as well. It reminds me a little, I, I've played these games on, on the iPad my kids have where there's the different size dots and the bigger ones are trying to eat the, the smaller ones. And, and I feel like it's a little bit like that, a little bit with pediatric dentistry and orthodontics. It's who's, you know, they, they're trying to hire us. We're trying to hire them. How's this going to play out? And I think that's also kind of unresolved as, as, in 2017. I think you're right. But we see those relationships, I think, um, increasingly tightening. There's, a, there's, there's some great data that we've seen that shows that right now we're graduating actually more pediatric dentists than we are orthodontists each year by a delta of about 75 per year. And so, well, right now it's very difficult for an orthodontist to attract and hire, and there's some level of risk if that uh, pediatric dentist leaves. We think that will become easier over time uh, to find a pediatric dentist to come in as an employee associate. Um, and we also think that partnering with a pediatric dentist is a, a very good strategic move amidst all the the trends that we're seeing uh, to kind of ensure this built-in uh, referral source um, of children uh, coming up through the pediatric dental offices. Yeah. Great. So I, I want to zoom out a little bit more even. Um, we're going to skip past politics or economics, but demographics, at least, I, I think is something that, that you're, you've looked at a little bit. Where, where are we at in terms of that? Is, is, you know, we were in a kind of a time where I think sensibilities about families and children and immigration and things are changing. How do you feel that that is going to impact uh, the orthodontic landscape? It's another great question, and, and one we do look at quite in, you know intricately. Um, I'm not sure how much has changed, um, although that we can we can easily say that as we as we annually um, query the, the resident base and ask them where they want to work in the United States, um, it's very centered around the population areas of the country, um, in you know cities uh, of more than five hundred thousand people, um, coastal towns or mount or mountain towns or any place near the, the water. You know, that's where young people want to work and raise their families. Um, you know, I've been to a lot of resident programs and, and done a lot of resident webinars over the last four or five years and. You know, we consistently say that, you know, there are some fabulous opportunities in some uh, less exotic, you know, less romantic um, locations if you're willing to go there. And, you know, people will drive an hour and a half to come see the orthodontist. And you can make such good uh, margins in those kinds of places that uh, you can buy the beach house, you can buy the ski chalet, you can buy the plane to fly you there. Um, but uh, it's difficult to attract people that want to go to those places. But... Uh, well, I, I don't think that's going to change a whole lot. Um, right. you, you know, the residents want to live where, the, where where it's fun to live. Yeah. Um, it's just a steeper climb when you live in these more um, competitive areas. How about things like birth rates or, you know, echo booms? Is, is are we are we going to have more kids or less kids? You know, can we do a public service announcement to have people have more kids? You know, what what's how does that affect <laughs> us? 
Yeah, it, uh, again, it's a, it's another great question. You know, we saw a birth boom in the year 2007, which, as you might recall, is the year before the, the Great Recession, as it's known. Yep. And we had 4.3 million children born in that year. And every year since then, we've had fewer and fewer children. Last year, we had 3.9 million. 2017 is predicted to be just under 4 million at 3.9 million, but that's, you know, 350,000 less than were born in 2008. In aggregate, if you if you add up the number of fewer births since 2007, it's about 2.3 million children. And that's as if everybody took birth control in the United States for six months and no one had a baby. Now, it's going to drip out over time. And if you believe that the full-phase dentition for a you know, average practice is around 10 or 11 years of age. We're right now in kind of the peak number of kids that we're going to see, but every year hereafter for the next decade, we're going to see fewer and fewer children. And because of what's going on that we've already talked about, we're going to have more places competing for fewer children. So I think that points me to if, if adult treatment is not part of your treatment modality, it needs to be. The data is very clear on where the growth is in the practices the last two or three years, and it's in the adult market and it's in the aligner market. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice for, I think, the people listening. That I And I feel like in our practice as well, you know, we definitely have focused on adults and that's that has been a growth area for us. Okay, great. Well, let's switch gears here a little bit. You know, we talked about how you visited all of these orthodontic practices. I bet there's only 10 or 20 people in the world that have seen a thousand orthodontic practices. What are the kind of overarching similarities of successful practices? If, if you could grab one or two things to tell our listeners about. Um, I've logged a lot of miles and it have been a lot of practices, you know, just small to, to, you know, the, the, the core market is about a 1.2 million solo owned practice. That's where about 65% of the solo, uh, of the practitioners are. And that's the mean collections level, um, and so forth. And I, I think my, my words to the specialty right now, when I'm asked to, um, you know, speak in front uh, of a group of orthodontists is, you know, you're not going to be able to stop these changes. There are a lot of concerns that everybody has, but what we're seeing is is the thread that's successful um, in growing practices are two or three things. And, and one is, regardless of what kind of treatment modality you choose, you have to have a really excellent service mindset today uh, to be competitive. And from a technology standpoint, your deployment of how you communicate with the consumer on a social media front, um, we think is of paramount importance. So regardless of if you have a cone beam or an analog radiograph with a darkroom still, you know, you can treat orthodontic cases regardless of which technology you have, but you can't attract patients unless you're speaking to them where they are and how they want to be spoken to. And a lot of good data. So, you know, you've got to have a mobile-ready website. You've got to be on Facebook. You've got to have great SEO and be monitoring that. You have to have some kind of, you know, review program where you're actually getting reviews and you have to be able to live through the bad ones that you can get. But there's a lot of advice from the podiums on how to do that. 
Um, do you have to be on Twitter and blog? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I know that, you know, Facebook is going to really a video only. They predict, um, Zuckerberg predicts that 90% of what we consume in five years is going to be video. So I think if you want to get on the front edge of how consumers want to be talked to, especially moms, um, on your website, you've got to have video on your Facebook. You've got to be doing videos, um, you know, appropriately uh, with the right, you know, legal pieces, but with your patients as they're entering the practice, as they're exiting. Um, there's got to be some community noise about who you are, and you've got right. to be able to really deploy that. And then you've got to really have, you know, we, we call it mission statements in the 90s, but you, you've really got to do some studying on your business culture, your practice culture. And it starts from the top. The leader of the practice, usually the orthodontist, has got to decide what they stand for, what they're about, what their values are, and they've got to communicate those through the employee base, and that has to be experienced by the consumer. And practices that are speaking to consumers appropriately on, on media and that have a value system and then where consumers can feel that when they're in the office um, are succeeding uh, regardless yeah. of the deployment of technology or the competitive environment. And it's, it, from what I'm hearing, you're you're giving that almost more weight than some of the uh, more mundane technical, logistical uh, management systems. I mean, obviously those are important, but you know, if if the patients don't come in the front door, it's hard to use any of those things. That's what we're worried about: is making the telephone ring and and then. What we're starting to have some science around is when the telephone rings, how do we effectively communicate? And I think that will be the next generation of, of really uh, practice management and skill set learning that the practice owners are, are going to differentiate themselves with. You know, are, are they delivering excellence in the communication chain with consumers after the, if they can get the phone to ring first? And then after they do, are they not losing those people? And we don't have a lot of science about it. It's, you know, we're moving from a very clinically centric specialty to a hybrid, you know, business centric, clinically centric in this business aspect. You know, we know the nuts and bolts of, of where our numbers kind of should be. We've heard a lot of lectures about that. We, we share a lot of information about that, but these softer sides of business are really the differentiators. And you think of companies like Apple and like Google and like, um, Mercedes and like Tiffany's and like uh, Pottery Barn Kids and, and things like that where they can really um, have a, an experience that their consumers have with them that's predictable and repeatable and that occurs over and over again. And then this whole word of mouth thing begins to happen. And those are the practices that, that, that tend to be doing very, very well in today's environment. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's one of my goals with this podcast is to kind of shed light on the need for these softer skills and, and highlight their importance. Do you think it's possible for these, these science oriented orthodontists to improve their kind of personalities or their, or their ability to communicate with people? You know, I, I think it's a learned skill. I, I really do. I think, I think orthodontists think in millimeters and they, they, they're scientists and, and they're, you know, they're very regimented and process oriented. And this softer side can all go into that. There's, there's a regimented piece of it. It's a discipline. It's a learned skill. We don't have a lot of nationally known speakers that are experts on these skills. And we're kind of looking for the first time kind of really at business and outside of uh, what we would call a orthodontic practice management specialist, perhaps, to try to teach us some of these things. So I think it's an area where there's a bit of a vacuum. You have to search for it. 
Um, you know, w- one area where I see um, tremendous growth is just on the social media within the specialty. There's a, there's a lot of, of groups that you can join where a lot of information is shared, and we're seeing that to be quite a successful method uh, to gain knowledge about what's working uh, for other orthodontists that you can incorporate in, into you. I, you know, the last thing I would say is it's, you know, it, it's hard to be a, uh, a dog if you were born to be a cat. And so <laughs> you, you can't change the, the, who you are or how you interface with people, but you can change how you approach your business. And, you know, our advice is be who you are. But, you know, use the scientific mind that you have to make these decisions, um, write them down, teach them to your staff, communicate them to the consumer, do it over and over, hone that skill, bring people in, share, get information shared by other orthodontists. I think that's probably the best learning method we have. And it's one of the reasons MKS, I think, was, was such a successful and exciting meeting is there was just a lot of sharing, peer sharing on some of these softer sides. It was a non-clinical meeting and there's a great hunger for that information. What are you doing? What are you doing? And, and trying to incorporate pieces that will work for you, but you've got to be you. Yeah, that's true. Um, kind of to wrap things up here. Are there anything that you're that you're doing in your personal life in terms of habits or techniques or tools to accomplish or be productive uh, that you feel like uh, you'd like to share with our audience? There is actually, and and you know this really doesn't have a lot to do with orthodontics, but that's you know, totally I'm fine. I'm 55 years old. I have I have three kids that are in the process of getting out of school or just about out of school, and I kind of looked at myself a year and a few months ago and. And I said, man, I don't really like, you know, h- how you're how you're living. Um, I was overweight by 35 pounds. I was working all the time. I had I was uh, kind of caught in the treadmill uh, that maybe orthodontists feel like they're in. But I, I hired a personal trainer. I had all the excuses that everybody else has, and I said to him, you know, I've got a crazy travel schedule. And he said, I'll work around it. And, you know, what do you want to accomplish? And I said, I want to live better. Um, and part of that is getting in shape. And part of that is, is starting to see a doctor more frequently and, and being monitored that way. And, um, you know, after 13 months, it's, it's, it's been a really life-changing thing. I, I watch what I eat a lot better. I'm much healthier. I have a lot healthier mental attitude um, about my life and my work. And, um you know, life is a journey. We're always learning and, and new thing and, and trying new things. It's not easy, but it can be done just kind of one step at a time. And um, that's been the most exciting thing in my personal life, uh, really, over the last year. And, and really in a good spot right now, and, and feel pretty healthy. Great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's that's inspiring. And, and then, you know, I sh- actually I noticed when I saw you in Dallas. That I thought you had, you, you you looked good. You looked like you had. I probably should have come up and 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 given you a compliment on it. But congratulations, that's that's fantastic. And then I think that connection with your physical uh, active activity and your kind of mental health and energy is really phenomenal. And it's amazing how we kind of discount that. It, it really is. You know, over these travels, I get to have dinner with a lot of orthodontists, and sometimes their children are around, and, and I ask them, you know, why don't you want to be an orthodontist like your mom and dad? And there's a lot of reasons, um, uh, and a lot of great reasons, but the overwhelming number one reason that I hear is I don't want to work as hard as my mom did or my dad did. And, um, you know, we're all kind of wired that way, and I think the orthodontists as a group, 
you know, especially so. Uh, very, very driven, very anal retentive, very achievement oriented, very bright academically and, and, and mentally. And, and you spend a lot of hours doing that. And, um, when you, when you kind of stay, take a step back, um, there still is in this marketplace enough for everybody to do really well. It might be a little bit tighter, but it's still, I think, the very best medical or dental specialty in the world. And um, economically, it can, it can work well for you. But if you're not healthy and uh, you're not there uh, for the people you really care about, um, it becomes less meaningful over time. So uh, it's, a, it's a big piece of it for sure. Yeah. I agree. Well, Chris, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. Uh, I know you've got a website. Uh, it's at bensonclark.com if people want to go and check that out. And I know you're active uh, online on, on Facebook. If people have questions for you, they can find you there and, and kind of ask any follow-up questions they might have. Absolutely. And Lance, thanks for doing this. I think it's a real uh, contribution to the profession and to your peers and colleagues. And I wish you great success with it. Anything we can do to help you, let us know. Thank you very much. Have a great night, Chris. Sounds great. Thank you. Hey, guys. What a great interview, wasn't it? I'm sure if you have any questions for Chris, he'd be happy to answer them. So feel free to reach out to him with anything you might need. Just a request, if you haven't subscribed to our show, go ahead and do so through iTunes. And if you want to leave us a review, that would be fantastic. If you have any ideas for future guests for the show, shoot me an email, lance at elevateorthopodcast.com. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.